I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, a psychoanalyst and artist based in Sweden who works with people internationally. And this is episode 229 of Rendering Unconscious Podcast. Today's episode, we have Dr. Carter J. Carter presenting an article he wrote called All the Rage, the Whiteness of Psychoanalysis and What It Cannot Dare to See. This article was originally published on January 27th, 2023 for the Psychoanalytic Activist. You can find it at psychoanalyticactivist.com. A link to this article will be available in the text accompanying this episode, as will an article that Dr. Lada Shiha wrote, published on February 3rd, called On Targeting an Arab Woman, published at Counterpunch. You can find it at counterpunch.org. Carter Carter received his bachelor's in cultural anthropology and Middle Eastern and Islamic studies from New York University. His MSW from Simmons University School of Social Work and his PhD from Smith College School for Social Work. He also earned a postgraduate certificate in psychoanalytic psychotherapy from the Massachusetts Institute for Psychoanalysis. He is an assistant professor of clinical psychology at the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts and a lecturer in the doctorate in clinical social work program at the University of Pennsylvania School for Social Policy and Practice. You can also hear a discussion with him at episode 227 of Rendering Unconscious podcast. Rendering Unconscious is also a book, Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, available from Chapar Books. Visit our publisher's website, chapar.net, that's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. Rendering Unconscious Podcast has just celebrated five years, so I'd like to take a moment to thank all of my guests, listeners, and our Patreon community. Thank you so much. I wouldn't be here without you. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. Your support is so very appreciated. Thank you so much for supporting Rendering Unconscious Podcast and all of my other creative endeavors. Hi there, uh, this is Carter Carter. Uh, I'm at, at Vanessa's request, I'm going to be reading you uh, the text of an article that I just published in the Psychoanalytic Activist called All the Rage, The Whiteness of Psychoanalysis and What It Cannot Dare to See. Uh, part of what this article explores is uh, r- recent events uh, regarding my colleague, Dr. Lara Shiha. Um, at the time that this article was written, 
there were facts about uh, that were germane to the case that weren't yet in the public domain. And so uh, at the end of this reading, I may uh, append a couple of details that are that are germane to what I wrote that uh, weren't publicly available at the time. Uh, so this is all the rage, the whiteness of psychoanalysis and what it cannot dare to see. I am part Afghan, among many other parts. Wasp parts, Jewish parts, Portuguese parts, American parts. I watch news footage of the U.S. pulling out of Kabul, the Taliban overrunning the country, people climbing on planes and falling from the sky to their needless deaths. I was feeling, not thinking, really. Had I been asked to put my feelings into words, it would have been something like, fuck the United States of America. Fuck its citizens, including me, who allowed this to happen. Fuck the Taliban, for good measure. My Afghan grandfather was in charge of the preservation of the Bamiyan Buddhas, among the greatest treasures of Afghan history. He watched on the news as the Taliban destroyed them, leaving vast blank spots in the cliff walls into which they were carved. I bet he thought something on the order of, fuck the Taliban, too. Throughout the Me Too era, Twitter has been full of postings by rightfully aggrieved women expressing their rage and anguish through the maxim, kill all men. To my knowledge, this did not launch a vast array of mass and serial murders of men by aggrieved women. I imagine that most people of color have had a moment of suffering a profound racist indignity and feeling, thinking, perhaps even saying, fuck white people, or in the vernacular of Twitter, white people. I imagine that most women have suffered a profound misogynistic indignity and found themselves feeling, thinking, perhaps even saying, fuck men. Bell Hooks famously wrote a book about this feeling. She called the feeling in the book Killing Rage. The book is named for an eponymous essay in it, Killing Rage, Militant Resistance. It is an exploration of black rage in part through a critique of how psychoanalysts, quote, explain it away. Hooks exhorts the reader to, quote, see black rage as something other than a sickness, to see it as potentially healthy, potentially healing response to oppression and exploitation. She critiques black activists whom she also sees as demanding a, quote, repression and silencing of the rage of other black people as the sacrificial offering they make to gain the ears of white listeners. Hooks further argues that for many black people growing up under the apartheid conditions of, in the United States, cultivating the capacity to repress their rage was indeed essential to survival. Quote, we learned when we were very little that black people could die from feeling rage and expressing it to the wrong white folks. We learned to choke down our rage. For Hooks, this experience is part and parcel of the ways in which, quote, white folks have colonized black Americans. A part of that colonizing process has been teaching us to repress our rage, to never make them the targets of any rage we feel about racism. Resisting this socialized repression to one's rational rage is, in Hooks's view, essential to the project of refusing to collaborate with one's own subjugation. It would obviously be a bad faith reading of Hooks and of these moments of unvarnished rage so many of us feel in the face of discrimination to interpret them as frank bigotry to be condemned. This is not, in any meaningful sense, anti-white racism or anti-male prejudice. Now, plenty of people made this bad faith interpretation of killing rage, often without having read the book. These are what Eve Sedgwick calls paranoid readings, seeking to foreclose, to always already know the answer, to not need to see something in a text that one might find discomforting in oneself. What happens if we approach such texts, such moments, 
from the stance that Sedgwick calls reparative reading. If we approach them with some empathic openness, some willingness to mentalize, I think we would clearly recognize that they all involve an oppressed person subjected to violations and degradation and destructiveness, feeling an enormous rage at the powers that make such humiliations possible. It's hard to be mad at a construct, difficult to really be enraged at the patriarchy or white supremacy or capitalism, even if these are ultimately the proper target of one's anger. Our minds don't readily accommodate such abstractions in moments of crisis. Instead, normal human beings are vulnerable to casting a particular person or group as a synecdoche of the true focus of our outrage. In a calmer moment, we might frame the issue more abstractly. In the moment of crisis, as Hooks notes, there's a needed emotional relief from unjust suffering that can come from letting our rage out. And to be frank, sometimes the synecdoche is appropriate because it recognizes the complicity of a person or group with the larger structures of domination that cause such harm. In Killing Rage, Hooks famously feels murderous rage towards a white man who could have easily intervened when she and her friend were being discriminated against, and instead he did nothing to serve his own advantage. In that moment, the white man was standing in for the white man, capital white, capital man, and reasonably so. He had done precisely nothing to differentiate himself, to make a more ethical choice. He had colluded with racism, and in so doing, he collapsed the space between his specific white male subjectivity and the larger figure of the white man, capital white, capital man, the structures of racism and patriarchy. He did that through his choices. Hooks just recognized it and felt some kind of way about it, as anybody would. She did not kill the man, of course. She wrote down her feelings on a legal pad right next to him in big letters so that he would be forced to read her mind on the page to mentalize her rage. This rage should not be difficult to mentalize in this instance or generally. The failure to mentalize it is, I would argue, motivated, politically motivated and psychologically motivated. You would need to make a decision conscious or otherwise, to turn off your empathy in relation to this experience. You would need to become, as Simon Baron Cohen puts it, mind blind. Why would you do that? Most likely because you don't want to actually contend with how you're positioned in relation to the power and violence that are being critiqued. You don't want to see yourself on the wrong side. Like the white man in Hooks' story, you wish to collude with power while having plausible deniability about your collusion. As Kirkland Vons and Lisa Harris have noted, these kinds of failures to mentalize are decidedly dangerous when it comes to black and brown people. A refusal to actually extend normal empathy to this kind of pain and its expression amounts to what Christopher Bolas calls violent innocence, a sadistic desire to lash out while preserving an image of yourself as pure and superior. It is an extraordinarily racist, cowardly thing to do. And it becomes dangerous because these failures to mentalize lead one to erroneously see an angry black or brown person as dangerous, unhinged, enraged for no reason, psychotic terrifying. A person seen in that way is liable to get very hurt indeed, especially when a white person says they're scared. James Baldwin, in an essay about his own black rage, famously wrote that, quote, Negroes are anti-Semitic because they're anti-white. 
His critique involves a recognition that American Jews of European ancestry, a persecuted people, found some protection in our inculcation into whiteness, and that this protection was welcomed by many, even as it came with a great moral injury. Karen Brodkin tracks this history in her landmark work, How Jews Became White Folks and What That Says About Race in America. Consider the crux of Baldwin's argument, quote, of course it is true, and I am not so naive as to not know it, that many Jews despise Negroes, even as their Aryan brothers do. There are also Jews who despise Jews, even as their Aryan brothers do. It is true that many Jews use, shamelessly, the slaughter of the six million by the Third Reich as proof that they cannot be bigots, or in the hope of not being held responsible for their bigotry. It is galling to be told by a Jew whom you know to be exploiting you that he cannot possibly be doing what you know he is doing because he is a Jew. Baldwin is recognizing in a certain sort of white American Jewish person a tendency towards violent innocence vis-a-vis -vis people of color. I would regard that violent innocence as a strategy for managing profoundly conflictual identifications between whiteness, a supremacist ideology and identity, and Jewishness, a persecuted identity and potentially a liberatory philosophy. One wants to be Jewish because one is Jewish. One wants to be white because it is safe. To square the circle, one finds a way of being Jewish that cooperates with whiteness, that does not issue a frontal challenge to its supremacist colonial logic. One finds ways to participate in supremacist and colonial practices as a Jewish person. Such compromise formations are clearly evident in both American and Israeli politics of late. They have also been in full flower in professional psychoanalysis. Consider the recent controversy surrounding my colleague Lada Shiha. Lara is Lebanese, Arab, and a Canadian citizen. She's a highly regarded scholar of Palestinian resistance and a leader in the field of psychoanalysis, where her advocacy and activism have dramatically expanded the intellectual and social diversity of the profession. Lara's advocacy on behalf of Palestinians has been a bugbear for some white Jewish people in psychoanalysis with more pro-Zionist politics, even as it has been embraced as vital and instructive by many other white Jewish people in psychoanalysis with more anti-Zionist politics, to say nothing of countless black people, indigenous people, and people of color broadly. Like many pro-Palestinian activists, especially Arab activists, Lara has been targeted by pro-Israel groups that seek a pretext to frighten and humiliate her, to take her down. Of late, one such group called Stand With Us have run their customary playbook on her, filing a complaint naming her with the U.S. Department of Education against the George Washington University, alleging anti-Semitism in her dealings with two Jewish students, white Jewish students, I should say. Organizations, including Jewish Voices for Peace, have criticized Stand With Us, alleging that these complaints are often specious and designed to, be, to create an excuse for the subject of the complaint, often an Arab person, to be pilloried, harassed, doxed, and threatened with death and pilloried, harassed, doxed, and threatened with death, Lada has been. The pillorying started outside psychoanalysis, but was eagerly taken up within it. It seems to me that many who had longstanding objections to Lada's politics, and perhaps envy of her successes as a path-breaking woman of color, leapt upon a pretext to vent their most Kleinian, racist feelings and impulses at her. The full repertoire of supposedly polite and professional racist fear-mongering has been deployed. Concern trolling, red-baiting demands for McCarthyite investigations, assassinations of character, demands for resignation, barely veiled, I should perhaps say, not veiled at all, racial animus and insult. 
two particularly rageful tweets about Israel and the Israeli military forces have been passed around as if they were smoking guns, providing an uh, proving an abiding hatred of Jews, despite an open letter signed by hundreds of Jewish colleagues supporting Lara and attesting to her record of fighting all forms of bigotry, including anti-Semitism, and being an extraordinary ally to Jewish people fighting bigotry and discrimination worldwide. Most notably, there has been a near total refusal to recognize that what has transpired is a large-scale effort by white people to dox, hobble, humiliate, and banish the first woman of color to run Division 39, one of the largest psychoanalytic organizations in the world. This is a mob of white people seeking to destroy a person of color and get away with it. It's an old American story. Lara is circumspect about her own experiences of endangerment, persecution, and trauma, both regarding recent events and by the Israeli state over her lifetime. Despite being a vocal and visible activist, she mainly keeps her own experiences private. I knew her for nearly a decade before I learned details of some of her own more harrowing stories. Stories of living through bombardments in Israeli-occupied South Lebanon during high school, including one less than a mile from her own school. Stories of friends, whole families being blown apart by Israeli mines, the locations of which the Israeli government had evidently refused to release even after the occupation ended. Stories of needing to flee her home for Canada in order to be safe. And here I'm going to cut in to the original text uh, to read an excerpt from uh, an article that Lada published uh, in the online magazine Counterpunch. Uh, the title of this article is, is, quote, on targeting an Arab woman. And I'm going to read you an excerpt uh, in which she gives some context for the tweets that have been sort of circulating around this complaint. She says, quote, they, i.e. stand with us, knew they had to splice my Twitter thread to craft a narrative that would not be easily refuted by women, let alone feminist and women of color. In the misrepresented thread, I recount my eight-hour detention at the King Hussein Bridge by Israeli border security, who questioned me about my research project in Palestine. My detention is not what is striking here. The Israeli occupation forces who populate the border crossing routinely harass, detain, and intimidate researchers, activists, or professionals who may be critical of Israeli apartheid. What is omitted by their unethical cherry-picking is that a male Israeli agent acting as representative of the state, hence my use of blanket Israeli, Unquote, specifically threatened to hit me if I did not sit down. After I told him not to talk to me like that, two other male agents threatened, demeaned, and harassed me. One specifically yelled at me, quote, I will send you back to Lebanon so that you can be raped and beaten by Hezbollah, who will hang you by your hair from the ceiling, end quote. And here I'm going to go back to my original text. Can we look at a woman who has lived this life, who spends her entire career studying and advocating for the rights of persecuted people being subjected to what all credible human rights organizations regard as gross violations of law and decency? Can we see her? Can we dare to see ourselves in a person with that history saying, fuck Israel and Israelis are so fucking racist in private? for her Twitter was private, to her friends, at a moment when Israel had once again done something massively violent and destructive, and then made a violently innocent offer of aid, to say nothing of saying that it was threatening to send her back to Lebanon to be raped. Are we really prepared to condemn that? Are we really going to be so parsimonious and selective with our empathy as to be unable to see the legitimate critique and suffering inside of those statements? <laughs> 
Or are we going to recognize our own suffering and vulnerability in the life of another who is saying some things that might hurt some of our feelings? We're therapists. We do this kind of vicarious introspection every day. We are very good at empathy in theory. A failure of empathy for this person in this moment amounts to a cynical choice that serves to protect one's own whiteness and the whiteness of our profession. I think there is a lesson for psychoanalysis in these recent events, a lesson about its profound investment in whiteness and its concomitant denial of that investment. These are issues I'm trying to write about at greater length than other venues, but in brief, our history as a profession is rooted in Jewish flight from what one might call big authoritarianism in the kind of Devon and Godier sense of big history into the petty authoritarian arms of British and especially American psychoanalytic institutes that were envious and hostile towards them. In order to make a new home in this white authoritarian environment, refugee Jews and their American-born counterpoints, uh, counterparts were obliged to pass to a great extent. This history is well documented in Emily Kurloff's Contemporary Psychoanalysis and the Legacy of the Third Reich and in Douglas Kersner's Unfree Associations. Both Karloff and Kersner write of the profound pressure on Jews to pass and to conform. Both of them frame the passing as being about Americanness or Gentileness, but in so doing, they misunderstand the unenviable Faustian bargain that our psychoanalytic ancestors were making. It was all about whiteness and passing as white. Having fled a white supremacist movement in Nazism, they had to find a place for themselves in the American version that had inspired it. If psychoanalysis cannot fully countenance its own investment in whiteness, it will die. Its most luminous insights are those that shed light on dynamics of abuse, hatred, shame, and persecution. These insights are most relevant to those of us with considerable personal experience of such things. People of color, queer people, poor people, disabled people, people at all kinds of margins, and those who come near the margins to love us. The whiteness of professional psychoanalysis is absolutely noxious to us. We might be the new lifeblood of this field if whiteness does not insist on segregating us out of the profession by being unsurvivably hostile to us. We should be watching closely what happens to Lada to see if psychoanalysis might be capable of seeing the errors of its white ways and making room for the rest of us. And I would add a coda to that um, end of that article. Now that uh, there are much many more facts of the case publicly available, I'm really interested to see if many of the white psychoanalysts who were raising the greatest alarm around this, uh, what I would see as a cherry-picked and suspect narrative of her work and her writing. Um, now that there's a fuller accounting of the facts available, I'm wondering uh, if they're going to be willing to not just see the error of their ways, but to actually acknowledge them and change as a result of this experience. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a presentation by Dr. Carter J. Carter. For more, visit his website, carterjcarter.com. I highly recommend reading both articles, All the Rage, the Whiteness of Psychoanalysis and What It Cannot Dare to See, 
by Dr. Carter J. Carter, available at psychoanalyticactivist.com. And On Targeting an Arab Woman by Dr. Lara Shiha, available at counterpunch.org. I'd like to take a moment to thank Carl Abrahamson for providing the introduction and outro music to Rendering Unconscious podcast. You can visit his website at carlabrahamson.com. And now a piece from the soundtrack to our film, Lunacy. The soundtrack is available at Highbrow Lowlife's Bandcamp page. Visit highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com. All of our music is available for free download or name your price. So feel free to visit and download. You can also find our film Lunacy at Vimeo On Demand. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode at renderingunconscious.org. Enjoy. The Creator. She is present. She is not in there, in the on. She is never enough. She is not being they what guides him into life and of the singular world. This deity, physical, is solely for procreation and any sexual act, intention, was considered to be. Method brings us closer, teen, the the use agreed with this definition of, if there ever was one, the walk around the block and take me to the moon. Doesn't easily submit hidden strata of the soul. An electronic screen can never compete because it's relying on the content, interactions, it's someone else's places. The longer the distance from the moon in both time and known as foray space that new generations experience, the less likely it is that human contemplative ability will remain as such. If a capacity isn't used and exercised, it will dwindle and die first formed during the child, appears sexuality is a force of, I am just one of those, first issue of, hard and fertile. That said, the moon might then actually be quite good, right? Yet covertly very active, just inside Manhattan. Counterforce to this contemporary negation of life. Women in general, artists, sensitives, and poets. Actually, I know you're doing out history. 
have been highly aware of the moon and its relevance and have adapted to it in afternoon and around the clock and inspiration. Again, the lysanthropic filter needs to be applied. Moon madness centered in Italy. Varying degrees and cultural shapes signify the inability to handle those aspects of the human on contemporary psyche. Sensitivity, inspiration, non-utilitarian creativity, etc. The response becomes compensating wherever and solar phallic unusually gathered together of rapacious and feral. For the insensitive, tricky as the moon becomes, something pallid, useless and terrifying in its mysteriousness. Something you weigh sometimes. There is something about anxiety that protects its subject, which makes everything bright and simple again. So much alike, against fright, and so against fright neuroses. We shall return to this point later. Wolf is also soaked in blood. This ferocity and would take too long. Bloodlust, essentially, of its functions. The all the on, with a female shedding of blood, guided. See, was the waves, sexuality, and is of the earth by lunar forces and relating to fertility would make Sigmund Freud and later psychoanalysts nod for superstitious their heads. Perhaps not in approval of the phenomena itself, but certainly as a validation of the theory that sex and aggression are two sides of the same coin. Rope as the whips strike her bare shoulders. She cries out, Severine, Pierre, Pierre, I beg of you, don't let the cats finish his. It constrains the mobility of desire. Have experimented. I want to be a gray rabbit where much has been written about human development and dietary habits in times when sigil while in a state of gnosis induced by orgasm, pain, meditation. Vegetarians and carnivores coexisted and somehow applying a simplified I've got my angel filter I believe that much, Ten of Cups, wolf mythology in relation to the moon. It's like I've been screening early human sexual trauma of us, at least what peaceful vegetarian agrarian tribes could defend. And there was 
smell thee, themselves better in thee, psychoanalysis, ferocious human entities, but at night, with the serene painting A, best you can. Moon acting as an exist was easier to attack, loot, and rape. The survival instinct is steel by a gate and be not a static constant. It positions also with and is transmitted onwards partly in DNA and stationary, enacting through mythology to help future generations survive. The strong association between nighttime in the aforesaid manner of thee will retain the eyes of the moon. Blood and sexual assault is not a consciously formulated fear or pleasure to take lightly. Gross and unclean, earthiness, human eye, it's ingrained deeply within us, ontology founded, cleansed from all corrupting, darts in its milky to Kenneth Grant. Two of you have ending. Burrows we are, and subtopating the pure sub. The idea that this is sinful to shed the blood that is life, retained in the course of the transition, a crown of a bright, from the vegetarian to the carnivore, and the belief that expiatory rites are required to avert the mysterious runic, like grounded magnets, polarities, or a tour through rural look. We can see a pattern. Others, in every possible way, apparent, not dead. I, out, the words.